1976 was an amazing year. It was America's Bicentennial, and it was also the year that one of my favorite bands, Ramones, came out with their debut album. It happened to also be the year that the Emerson String Quartet formed. And while the Ramones are no more, rest in peace Joey Ramone, the Emerson String Quartet still persists. And today, you are going to hear my chat with violinist Eugene Drucker about what it's like to have been in the same band for that long. And uh, we'll also answer questions like, who trashed more hotel rooms, the Ramones or the Emerson String Quartet? The answer might surprise you. All right, don't forget to subscribe to, rate us and review us on iTunes, because that's what Joey would do. I'm pretty sure. All right, enjoy the episode. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah is shaking with excitement here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. Voice. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is violinist Eugene Drucker from the Emerson String Quartet. He's joining us from Carnegie Hall Studios. The quartet was formed in 1976 in New York City, and it probably goes without saying that they have played all over the world and are kind of a big deal. Um, Just this past season, and this is just their work together, they played 85 quartet performances. Eugene Drucker, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you, Tasha. So you guys just put out a 52-CD box set of your complete recordings on Deutsche Grammophone in honor of your 40th anniversary together, and I think that it officially doubled the size of my CD collection. So I thought <laughs> that to uh, start the show, we could just uh, listen through the, the whole box set. Okay. So here's track one of CD one of the 52-CD box set, and it's um, Schubert. Yeah, you know what? Actually, this is maybe not the most time-efficient plan. So, Eugene, why don't we just touch on some highlights of this box set? <laughs> yeah, so, unless you want to do one of those um, satirical condensations where you sort of compress, uh, I don't know how many hours of music into a few minutes, and yes. it sounds like total cacophony. That's a great idea. We could play them all at the same time. And <laughs> I, I think there's a, there is a recording of the entire ring cycle of Wagner that's supposed to take... I don't know, 15 minutes. Uh, you can imagine what that sounds like. Yeah, I, I, I've heard about that. And then I heard on the flip side that somebody, it was like a performance art thing where somebody uh, took, a, I think it was Beethoven's Ninth, and 
stretched it out so that it actually spanned 24 hours. Hmm. And people gathered in this place to listen to it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Congratulations on this major accomplishment, both of the 40th anniversary and of the box set. Thank you. So uh, usually on this show, I have guests teach me something about classical music, but I think I'd like for you to just teach me about your experience. I can't imagine what it must be like to have played music with other people for that long. So how has your first, your individual relationship to classical music changed over the years? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining you're, you're playing the same pieces over and over again. So are the, the grooves of your brain just sort of made out of notes at this point? <laughs> well, well, I think it is scientifically true that's been demonstrated in MRI studies that people who have particular skills ha- have increased blood flow to certain areas of their brains yeah. when they're stimulated in a particular way. So our brains are probably particularly developed for music in general and especially for the kind of music that we play and for the uh, mechanics of, of producing that music on our instruments. What it's like to play the same music over and over again, I will say that the string quartet literature is huge. Yeah. We have 16 Beethoven string quartets. Haydn wrote like about 70 string quartets. Mozart wrote uh, over two dozen quartets, but 10 of them particularly are, are famous. The Romantic composers uh, contribute a, a great deal to the literature. Um, I'm speaking from Schubert and Mendelssohn all the way through the 19th century. And then you have some iconic uh, works of the 20th century, the six Bartok quartets, 15 Shostakovich composers by the so-called Second Viennese School, Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, and the list goes on and on. And yeah. a lot of contemporary music has been written during our four decades of existence. Mm-hmm. So there's a great deal to choose from. There are certain pieces that you keep coming back to again and again because they're so great and yeah. because this is what audiences want to hear. But there's enough volume in this repertoire, enough variety that you can keep changing the playlist, so to speak. Yeah. And you can let certain works lie fallow for a few seasons, so there's a sense of renewed freshness when you come back to them. When Emerson first started, what was your what was your focus as a performer and, and as a group? Like, what sort of music did you play to begin with, and what have you sort of wound up playing? I mean, have you generally played everything always, or, or did you guys start out liking to play particular composers and ended up playing something else? Or how, how has that gone? <laughs> I don't think we've ever specialized in anything. It's true that the very first recordings we made, this is before we were together with Deutsche Grammophon, were of American contemporary music. There was a 100-LP set being arranged to celebrate the American bicentennial year. And we, re- we contributed two LPs to that set. Mm-hmm. So... People at first thought that we were specialists in American contemporary music, or some people did. But uh, right around that time, and we're speaking about the beginning of our career, we were learning a a late Beethoven quartet, an early Beethoven quartet, uh, a couple of the Haydn's. Uh, So we were just piecing together a repertoire uh, with certain specific short-term goals in mind. So already by... 
the summer of 1980, which was after we had been in existence for less than four years, we presented a complete Beethoven cycle in performance for the first time. So that's 16 major string quartets. That's six concerts worth of material. Yeah. Uh, and it's a big undertaking for a young string quartet. We were hesitant at first, but when our manager at the time encouraged us to do it at his festival, we decided to embrace that challenge. The following year, uh, for the very first time, we played all six of the Bartok quartets in a way that had never been done before, which was all six in one evening. Mm -hmm. It was at the time of the centenary celebration of Bartok's birth, and there were all sorts of concerts uh, in, in which Bartok's music was being celebrated. Uh, we wanted to do something a little different, and we decided it would be a viable artistic enterprise to have a three-and-a-half-hour-long concert in which we told his life story, wow. as it were, through his string quartets. These quartets span 32 years of his creative life, oh so uh, that's a majority of the time he was active as a composer, and, it, and it, if there's one single body of his work that tells the story, it's the string quartets. That's a, that's a really inno innovative way to to approach that, and and you guys kind of became known for doing innovative stuff from the get go, didn't you? I, I read something about that you had a rotating principal violinist, and and do you do you still? Yes, uh, Philip Setzer and I, we still uh, ever since we were students. This is before the official beginning of the quartet. Like many student quartets, we had alternating first and second violins. Mm -hmm. The difference was that since we evolved very gradually into a professional ensemble, we never saw a specific point at which we said, okay, uh, now it's time to get serious and to crystallize our roles as first violin and second <laughs> right. violin. Yeah. So we just carried this uh, procedure forward. There were some people who questioned the seriousness of our dedication to quartet playing because, you know, the way it had been done almost always before yeah. that was with fixed roles for the first and second violin. But we stuck with it and it, it became more accepted. And I would say that in the younger generation of quartets, a number of groups are doing that. Why, why did you guys do that? Like, what, what was the appeal? Did you just like playing different parts did was it just yes. more fun for you yes i would say yes to both of those yeah. and, uh, or to put it in a slightly different way we were students learning the art of string quartet uh -huh. playing and it was important for each of us to learn the particular skills involved in playing first violin sort of sailing on top of the texture of the string quartet and then the important role of the second violinist in uh, often in coordinating rhythmically the accompaniment to the first violin and often in string quartet textures there's an equality of roles for all four voices mm -hmm. the melodic material is evenly distributed sometimes among all four players so as a second violinist you have to know how to project your individual 
sometimes solo line from within the texture of the quartet, mm-hmm. in a, usually in a lower register from the register of the first violin, but not with a distinct timbre the way the viola has or the way the cello has. And also spatially, you're sitting on the inside. So in a performance situation, you're a little farther from the audience. So you, you have to develop that ability to articulate and project in a slightly different way when mm-hmm. you're uh, playing the second violin part. So it keeps you kind of nimble as a player, I would, I would imagine, to not be able to just sort of relax into your particular role. Yes, I, th- I think that the versatility uh, of uh, demanded of switching and, and uh, sort of creating a slightly different uh, total sound for the quartet, depending on who's playing first violin, uh, that, that this has expanded our horizons and have per- has perhaps, I hope, added an element of interest for our audiences. Also read that you guys did this crazy thing where you all decided to start playing standing up with the cello player on a riser. Yes, that was Wh- about 15 years ago. Um, that we where did that come that. from? Why, why did you Why did you make that move? I think it came from several sources uh, in several experiences that we had. One is that we were playing a concerto for quartet and orchestra with the Cleveland Orchestra by a contemporary German composer named Wolfgang Riem. Mm-hmm. R-I-H-M. And uh, he's a brilliant composer. This particular piece had an enormous orchestration with full brass section. Uh, I don't know how many French horns, trombones, uh, tuba, big percussion section, as well as full string section. Well, needless to say, there are some balance problems in a piece like that. Even though it's very well orchestrated, there are limits to how much a string quartet can project against an orchestration like that, that sometimes goes to an extreme. So we had the privilege of playing this with a great orchestra like the Cleveland Orchestra six times altogether with Christoph von Dochnani conducting. Uh, And at one point, Dochnani asked his assistant conductor who was listening to the rehearsal in the hall how well he could hear the quartet. Well, there were places where he couldn't hear us that well. So we tried to have us stand the three players who can stand while playing, the two violinists and violist, and to put the cellist on a riser. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that made all the problems disappear, but (laughs) it certainly enhanced our projection. So we became aware that when you stand, uh, you can project your sound more. I think to some extent we had an awareness of this before because, uh, you know, as as a soloist, a violinist is going to stand. Yeah. Uh, violist is going to stand, uh, or when uh, either uh, when you're playing concerto with orchestra or when you're playing a recital with a pianist, mm-hmm. you stand. But for some reason, the tradition of string quartet playing, the custom had developed for all four to sit. Yeah. So another experience we had that same season was a theater project called The Noise of Time, about the life and times of Shostakovich in the Soviet Union. The time frame of the the whole theater project was from the early 1930s until the mid-70s when Shostakovich wrote his last quartet. We played that last quartet, which lasts 35 minutes, the 15th quartet, 
in varying configurations on the stage. And between us, uh, we had uh, the four actors who were sort of uh, wandering around on stage and sometimes coming between us. Sometimes we were spaced very far away from each other on stage, sometimes sitting, sometimes standing. And eventually, the last 15 or 20 minutes, we were on a platform that moved slowly, imperceptibly toward the edge of the stage. So this whole experience of uh, working on the theater project uh, I would say, broadened our concept of, mm. of what was possible yeah. in playing the string quartet. And again, we became aware of the fact that you could play more freely physically when you're a violinist or a violist when you're standing. Yeah. You can move your arms a little more freely. Plus, it's better for projection. So perhaps it was inevitable that at some point we would experiment with applying this principle and these discoveries to the normal string quartet repertoire in normal concert setting. Yeah. And we put the cellist on a podium so that his F-holes would be closer to the F-holes of the two violins and viola because that's where the sound is coming from mostly. Uh, so you don't want the cellist to be at a disadvantage. I think it's visually more engaging. It's physically easier for us to play that way. And uh, we're able to see each other better in terms of cues uh, for our uh, ensemble playing. And it's really visually interesting. Mm -hmm. You see people standing up. There's something, I don't know, about that, that physical involvement in the music that, that draws you in as an audience member. So it's very cool. Yes. And it's, it's interesting to me, too, having come from a rock music background, that that's... You know, the formats of playing on stage, that that is such a tradition in classical music, that just the act of standing up is such a major move to make. You know, whereas in, in other genres of music, it's it's totally acceptable that people are running around the stage and playing down on their yeah. knees and <laughs> you know what I mean. Right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, I could say a couple of things about that. First of all, uh, if you look at some old paintings of uh, chamber music being played, this is before the invention of the string quartet, which uh -huh. came maybe in the 1760s. Uh, but if you look at paintings of a violinist and flutist playing together with a harpsichordist and uh, somebody playing viola da gamba or cello, well, of course, the, the viola da gambist uh, or the cellist would be seated and the harpsichordist would be seated, but the violinist and flutist would be standing. Huh. And I think there are even some pictures of early string quartets, very early quartets, where the violinist might have been standing. But at some point in the 19th century, it did become customary for everybody to sit. And I think it's important for people who don't have a background in classical music to understand that it's not in every genre of classical music that people are sitting because that mm -hmm. might create the impression that it's a very subdued, sedate art form. Right. Um, it's important to remember that classical music was all experimental. It was all contemporary music when it was first produced. Right, right. it used to be just music. It wasn't classical yeah, music. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And um, I think the reason that people began to sit was that there was something about chamber music particularly and string quartets even more so uh, within the realm of chamber music that seemed like the person's individual ego should be subordinated to a greater whole. Huh. And 
mm. you know, and there's something noble about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's bigger than the individuals involved. And I feel that uh, there there is something still to be said for this sublimation of the individual ego toward the the greater entity of a collective identity of, yeah, kind of, of string quartet. But yeah. we felt that it, it it might have required a slight adjustment for us and uh, for some audience members, but that there was nothing about this approach that would detract from the greatness of the music, that we were not going to be performing with extra showmanship and distracting from the essential aesthetic content of the music by standing rather than sitting. So you've played together in the, with the same people um, for for all this time, but in 2013, Paul Watkins joined. Yes. Uh, and um, what was it like to have that shift? I mean, you, you, you're just four people, and to have, you know, a quarter of of the group change, how did, how did that affect you? How did emotionally and as performers like what was that like that's a very good question Tasha. uh we had been playing together with david finkel for 34 years uh, he came in about three years after we formed the quartet and uh he's a huge musical personality he certainly had a big impact on us i i i hope that we had an impact on each other uh all of us during those 34 years uh we did have enough transition time he gave us um his notice so to speak mm-hmm. uh well in advance of the time that he actually left the quartet and it gave us time to uh, regroup uh, individually uh, collectively, the three of us who wanted to continue playing quartets and to begin the process of looking for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Watkins is an amazingly versatile musician, and uh, for somebody who's that busy, he's the least driven person that I have met <laughs> in the music world. I mean, he's so busy because uh, he still has uh, some solo activity. He's he's an accomplished pianist and a conductor as well as a uh, cellist. I mean, he's wow. mostly active as a cellist, and he's doing some ad hoc uh, chamber music uh, festivals in addition to his work with the quartet. But the quartet is the main focus for him, as it is for all of us. Uh, and he's a very quick learner. I would say that he had performed in his life maybe a dozen string quartets uh, before he started playing with us. Yeah. So there was a lot of repertoire for him to learn, because I'm talking about dozens and dozens of works that mm-hmm. we play. And uh, he's just so quick, so brilliant, uh, and so open, receptive to to the way we had been doing things before. And, uh, and of course, we're receptive to his influence and his suggestions. So it's been a mutually very beneficial transition period. I would very much love to hear. I mean, you guys have played together for for so long and all over the world. I know you've got to have some great tour stories. So <laughs> Probably, yes. <laughs> I don't know if I can come up with one on the spur of the moment. I, but, I mean, uh, a, 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 if, if you can think of a brief, crazy story, I, w- I would love to hear it. You've got to have – I mean, you've, you guys have played – 
everywhere.、Yeah. I guess maybe I'll make it a little bit simpler because that's kind of a broad question. What was the most fun time you ever had playing together? Where was it? What were you playing?、Uh, when we recorded the Schubert Cello Quintet with Mstislav Rostropovich, who was a larger-than-life figure, he was the teacher of our. Cellist David Finkel, who had followed him around in the United States and Great Britain, trying to get lessons whenever Rostropovich's performing schedule permitted. It was exhilarating being with Rostropovich, hearing his stories about、uh, his personal relationship with these two great composers, Prokofiev and Shostakovich, and of course we had a sense of what life had been like in the Soviet Union. Uh, during those decades of the 1950s and 60s,、uh, 70s, and a lot of、uh, alcohol flowed during those five <laughs> days that we were performing and recording with him. And 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 what happened? I mean, did you guys trash a hotel room? Did you?、Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I don't know what Slava did with his hotel room, but I I don't think that the rest of us did.、Uh, <laughs> It, it, it might、time. be. It, I think that occasionally rock groups might do that. I, I don't want to generalize, but、uh, yeah, I don't think classical music、uh, people generally do that. But it, it's probably happened. Yeah, it's, maybe some yeah. divas do it. I, I really don't know. Yes, classical music world. If any of you out there have trashed a hotel room, please email me. <laughs> uh huh. I want to hear this story. You guys have been playing together for for so long, and you're clearly still going strong.、Uh, it's amazing. I, I just congratulations on your accomplishment again. It's fantastic. And Eugene, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I really appreciate your spending this time with me, Tasha. All right, take care. You too. All right, everybody. That does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org/classroom. Check out our social media and follow at your own peril. Email me at dclay@houstonpublicmedia.org. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Rate and review us. Also at your own peril. Thanks today to audio producer Todd the Arthropod Holslander for making us sound nice. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his multiple Ocelli eyes. Thanks to Eugene Drucker for being here today. Thanks to engineer Leszek Wojcik at Carnegie Hall Studios for his help today. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.